service. Hey, Discos, this two-part episode of Badlands is our first ever crossover episode with Disgraceland, the other show that I host. Everything in this episode on Sharon Tate happens in the forthcoming Disgraceland episodes on Mama Cass, but we use the Rashomon technique to tell the story from different perspectives. Sharon Tate and Mama Cass were good friends and were both involved in one of the biggest American crimes of the 20th century. Only one of them made it out alive. Both of these two-part episodes, like every episode of every show we produce, were heavily researched by myself and my writing team. Tom O'Neill and Dan Piping Brings Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, is the fascinating and thoroughly researched and sourced book that we return to over and over. But we consulted many other sources as well, including Restless Souls, the Sharon Tate family's account of stardom, the Manson Murders and a Crusade for Justice by Elisa Statman with Bree Tate. Two books by Ed Sanders, including Sharon Tate, A Life, and also The Family. And The Manson Murders by Greg King. Papa John by John Phillips. Waiting for the Sun, A Rock and Roll History of Los Angeles by Barney Hoskins. Go Where You Want to Go, An Oral History of the Mamas and the Papas by Matthew Greenwald. And What's It All About by Michael Caine. This episode is a composite of an account based in some part by all of those source materials and is inspired by true events. However, some scenes, characters, and names have been fictionalized for dramatic purposes. We encourage you to listen to both of the two-part episodes to unlock the full context of this complex and endlessly fascinating story. You can hear the Mama Cass episodes later this year in Season 10 of Disgraceland. And remember, there are always more sides to every story. Rockarola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. I have gathered my heart as a rose, as a rose from the midst of a garden, and my love has the heart of its love, and its breath is a breath for your heart. The stories about Sharon Tate are insane. She was a sophisticated beauty who literally stopped traffic when she walked down the street. She began her movie career when America was becoming sexually liberated, and despite the ease with which she made a sex symbol, she aspired to be respected as a serious actress. She was equally famous for being the wife of Roman Polanski, director of the satanic thriller Rosemary's Baby as well as for the cast of Hollywood A-listers that regularly hung around their Cielo Drive home. Decades later, she is perhaps best known as one of the four victims gruesomely murdered at that Hollywood Hills home in August of 1969. Five if you count her unborn baby who was murdered along with her. She was close friends with Mama Cass Elliot, who was at the center of the Manson murders and whose actions may be why the true motive for those murders has been hidden for over 50 years. But throughout her brief career, Sharon Tate performed slapstick comedy and maudlin drama with equal aplomb. And she made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Reed Miller performing Love, Here Is My Heart in 1921. I played you that clip 
because I can't afford the rights to Stanley Kramer's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And why would I play you that specific slice of groundbreaking interracial commentary could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on December 15th, 1967. And that was the day that Valley of the Dolls opened in theaters, reintroducing Sharon Tate as not just another pretty face, but as a dramatic force to be reckoned with and a rising starlet unaware of the reckoning that was coming to her front door. On this episode, sexual liberation, gruesome murders, a reckoning, and Sharon Tate. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, season four, Hollywoodland. It was innocent entertainment in the City of Angels. Sharon Tate, hostess with the mostess at the Love House, a French Normandy-style residence nestled up on Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon, Hollywood Hills, that is. The party, like the woman herself, was to be perfect. Sharon Tate, 26 years old, blonde, strikingly gorgeous and impeccably tasteful, personified the 1969 American vision of perfect chic mini dresses by Betsy Johnson and Christian Dior, oversized sunglasses, patterned scarves, Chanel number no. five, more cultured than counterculture, neutrality in all its sublime beauty. She had the grace of Grace Kelly and the allure of Audrey Hepburn. America loved her. Sharon Tate was a star. Just look around, a who's who of Hollywood celebrities mingling in Sharon's living room. More than a hundred guests in total, Warren Beatty and Steve McQueen bringing that leading man energy. Jane Fonda and her little brother Peter bringing that old Hollywood pedigree. Nancy Sinatra getting mileage out of those boots. Tony Curtis was going on about his Balthus paintings and telling stories about Marilyn, God rest her soul. Hairdresser extraordinaire Jay Sebring, Sharon's ex-flame, indefinitely in friend zone purgatory. And not least of all, Sharon's good friend Cass Elliott AKA Mama Cass, repping LA's pop scene with the members of her newly defunct band, the Mamas and the Papas. This wasn't no California dreaming, this was real. It was March of 1969, and Sharon Tate was perfectly in her element as a star. Now, if she could just get people to take her seriously as an actress, the way they treated her husband, Roman Polanski, Director of last year's psychological horror smash, the satanic thriller, Rosemary's Baby. Just look at him. That ascot around his neck as if he were John Ford. Okay, if anyone was taking Roman too seriously, it was Roman. His early films were anxiety-ridden mindfucks of art school proportions, and he was the sensitive type. The studio butchered the fearless vampire killers the 1967 movie on which he and Sharon met and fell in love in real life. Cut it to shit. They even overdubbed Roman's accented English dialogue with the voice of another actor. 
It was rendered a blood-sucking farce, and Roman didn't do farce, Roman did art, highbrow. Sharon, on the other hand, didn't go for such hoity-toity pretensions. Fuck her, let's dance. Sharon just wanted to perform, farce or not. She wasn't afraid of being funny, of being laughed at. She was an actress after all, legit. She studied with Lee Strasberg, but not just drama, comedy. Comedy was hard, harder than anything. She didn't care what anyone else said. And the critics thought she was funny too, and not just in those episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies back when she was just getting started. Her latest movie, The Wrecking Crew, a spy spoof with Dean Martin, was drawing positive critical marks, mostly for her performance as a klutzy undercover agent. But when she tried to play dramatic, to play serious like she did in Valley of the Dolls, she was savaged in the papers. Roger Ebert called the movie offensive, appalling, and a dirty soap opera, which is hilarious because just one year later, Raj penned his one and only screenplay, a sequel turned satire of Valley of the Dolls that intentionally courted an X rating. Anyway, I digress. Roger Ebert aside, Sharon Tate was loved. But similar to her character in that dirty soap opera, Sharon feared she was only loved for her beauty. She knew she wasn't just a pretty face, even if Hollywood favored gratuitous close-ups of her tits and ass. Like Cass Elliot, people liked to stare at Sharon Tate. And like Cass, Sharon was insecure about how she looked. But they stared at Sharon differently than they stared at her 230-pound friend. Sharon Tate's first experience with getting noticed happened when she was only six months old. Her parents entered her in the Miss Tiny Top pageant in her hometown of Dallas, Texas, and she won. She also won the Miss Autorama contest at 15 years old in Richmond, Washington, where her family had moved for her father's career in the Army. A year later, she was crowned Miss Richland. Sharon's family moved again, this time to Vicenza, Italy, and at an American high school there, Sharon was named both homecoming and prom queen. The first time she walked down the street in New York City as an adult, she stopped traffic, literally. The city that never sleeps, the city that is always on, always going, 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 the city that has seen everything. It just stopped, it ceased to be for a few seconds. No horns, no cursing, just feet on brake pedals and jaws on the pavement. If you were in New York City that day and you saw Sharon Tate walk down the street, you'd know what I'm talking about. But Sharon endeavored to stop people in their tracks for her talent, not just her appearance. After this party was over, she would be one step closer to that goal, one day closer to leaving LA for Rome, where she would begin filming 12 Plus One, AKA The 13 Chairs, a film in which she'd co-star alongside none other than Orson Welles. Imagine that, her, Sharon Tate, just a few years into a film career, grinding it out, seeking legitimacy, in a movie with the guy who had made some of the greatest movies of all time. Of course, Orson's presence notwithstanding, the script called for Sharon to perform several semi-nude scenes. That was nothing new. What was new was that Sharon was three months pregnant, and as such, the director had arranged to shoot those scenes first upon her arrival, before she began to show too much. Roman, her husband, wasn't ready to be a father. He said that to Sharon verbatim. In all honesty, he wasn't ready to be a husband either, or even ready to be monogamous. But why would a happily married man bring home random girls from the Sunset Strip for threesomes if he was ready to be monogamous or ready to settle down in any way? 
And that threesome business wasn't Sharon's bag. Less so were the other sexual encounters Roman orchestrated for her. Freaky stuff, debauched orgies. The thinking about Roman's infidelities and humiliations made her feel a little less guilty about poking a hole in your diaphragm. Getting pregnant now, that would put a stop to these sexual escapades. She didn't tell Roman at first, and when she finally let him know she was expecting, his reaction was what she expected. What if they, you know, got rid of it and tried another time? She wouldn't hear of it. 1969 was going to be her year, a movie with Orson Welles, a husband who cut the shit and loved her and her alone and some fucking respect. And so when Sharon and Roman hosted a going away party at 10050 Cielo Drive for Roman, who was leaving for London the next day to scout locations for his next film, the couple presented a united front. The perfect star and the hottest director in the trendiest house. And coming soon, the cutest baby. Everything was fine, as it should be. Everything was perfect. And then the front door blew open. Sharon didn't recognize the two men who walked inside the house. She hadn't invited them, and their vibe was stylishly unkempt. The one taking lead had long hair, a bushy mustache, and a faux fur jacket. He wore a scarf around his neck like it was a code word to gain entrance to a secret society. Sharon knew their type, not just gate crashers, rubberneckers, coattail riders. They put jittery fingers to their noses while their eyes scanned the room. They knew they were out of their element and were quickly assessing the situation to find their easiest way in. Mustache guy found it, Cass Elliot. She made a beeline from across the room. One or both of them was fucking Cass, and that was obvious. And they were also dealing to Cass, which was a little less obvious since Cass did a good job of keeping that shit on the DL. And judging by the eyes Jay Sebring was giving to the uninvited guests from across the room, Cass wasn't the only one with a hookup. Ditto, Roman's friend from Poland, Wojtek Rykowski, and his girlfriend, coffee heiress, Abigail Gibby Folger, who suddenly put their cocktail glasses down to rummage for loose bills in their pockets. Whatever pick or Billy was dealing was probably a little harder than grass or acid. Sharon wasn't stupid. She smoked a little grass here and there, everyone did, and she dropped acid a handful of times until that one time she freaked the fuck out and swore off of it for good. But these guys had hard stuff written on their faces. Maybe Coke, definitely smack. What was that other one, that acronym, MDA? Sharon didn't even know what that was, but she knew it was making the rounds. But before Billy or Pick could make their rounds at the party, Pick started an argument, stepped on someone's foot and wouldn't apologize. Now Pick was in the guest's face, yelling, screaming. And the guest was yelling back at him. Pick was drunk or high. He was waving his head as he talked. It wasn't making much sense. Roman Polanski was irritated. His friendly little mixer was going to see, fucked sideways right before his very eyes. So we got in the middle of it, told him to knock it off. And then he looked at Pick Dawson and very calmly and very forcibly told him to leave. Now. The party never recovered. In fact, it ended early. John and Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas thought the whole thing was too strange. And that was saying something. They bailed and took Jane Fonda with them. Warren Beatty suddenly remembered there was something else he had to do. Fly his Learjet up to Nova Scotia, perhaps. And soon it was just Sharon and Roman. Roman went to bed. He was leaving in the morning, ahead of Sharon. 
flying to London to scout locations for his next film. Sharon was a little surprised that Cass and Jay associated with guys like Pick and Billy. And further, she was more than a little disturbed that they had infiltrated Sharon's blossoming domestic bliss, and they knew where she lived. It made her nervous, not just because they were drug dealers, but there was something about them, something desperate, something unpredictable. She saw it in the way Pick looked at Roman when Roman kicked them out of the house. Like Pick hadn't gotten what he came for. Like Roman would be sorry for interrupting. Then again, why did any of this surprise her? She wasn't that naive. Sharon remembered back to 67, a year and a half earlier. Her good friend Cass stepped on board the SS France off the coast of Massachusetts, set sail for London. The mamas and the papas were embarking on their limitless future. Sharon was happy for Cass. Everything seemed possible. Everything seemed perfect. Until it didn't. When the group arrived abroad, authorities were waiting. For her, for Sharon's friend, Mama Cass, to place her under arrest. October 10th, 1967. A hotel room in Rome. America's perfect movie star, Sharon Tate, watching television. More than a thousand miles away on a Southampton dock in the UK, Sharon's friend, Mama Cass Elliot, was in handcuffs. Sharon watched it all go down on the black and white set, like the rest of America, watching on their own TV sets back home. Sharon was in shock. Cass was being charged with stealing towels and soap from a London hotel held over from the last time she was in London. How embarrassing. Sharon could relate. She herself had recently been arrested for something even more ridiculous than pilfering toiletries. Busted on a train in Italy for the offense of wearing a short dress that was a little too short. Someone should tell the Italian cops that the societal norms were shifting. 13 million women in the world on the pill. Sex and the single girl selling millions, even if its author couldn't say the word sex on television. And if you weren't prepared for all that, Grandpa, then buckle up for Valley of the Dolls, which hit the cinemas that December. It was the 60s. People could go where they wanted to go, do what they wanted to do. Unless, of course, they were Mama Cass. Something about Cass's bus just didn't sit right with Sharon. Her arrest in 1967 was, for a minute anyway, all anyone back home in the States could talk about. Even more than Sharon's skimpy outfits in Valley of the Dolls, it would remain one of America's most infamous busts from the world of pop stardom until two years later in 1969, when another arrest for the murder of Cass Elliot's loyal and sympathetic friend would nearly eradicate Cass's seemingly innocent bus from the pop consciousness. Another bizarre murder in Los Angeles, the second in two days. Roman Polanski, the film director and husband of Sharon Tate, called newsmen to a hotel in Hollywood today, and there he made a long, emotional statement. Told a good deal of what had been on his mind since his pregnant wife and four others were killed at their home on August 8th. 21-year-old Susan Atkins is involved in still another murder case. She appeared in the Santa Monica City courtroom this morning 
to enter a plea in a trial stemming from the July 31st murder of 34-year-old Gary Hinman. Los Angeles police have placed Miss Atkins, also known as Sadie Glutz, at the scene of the Tate murder. Taking into account the published report in the Los Angeles Times, the story that Susan Atkins told about what allegedly happened that night after the murder at the Tate house, we drove from Cielo Drive at the base of Benedict Canyon up here. We found some uh, trousers and some uh, shirts that appeared to be turtleneck shirts or something uh, dark in color. Did they appear to have any stains on them? This is where they live. Among the stables, barns, and phony buildings of an old rundown movie location 20 miles from Los Angeles. They called themselves the family. Five members are now in jail on other charges in the desert town of Independence. The family's leader, Charles Manson, is jailed here. It is expected that he will be charged in the Tate murders. A weird homicide. Charles Manson was arrested on October 12, 1969 in Death Valley, California for Grand Theft Auto. It took LAPD a minute, but with Manson in jail and fellow Manson family member Susan Atkins also behind bars and blabbing like a schoolgirl, authorities connected the dots and by the end of the year formally charged the career criminal and cult leader with the Tate-LaBianca murders. But that did little to quell the overwhelming sense of panic. L.A. was Fear City. Atkins made a chilling confession that Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring were only the beginning. The Manson family had a hit list of other celebrities they were targeting. Frank Sinatra, Elizabeth Taylor, and her husband, Richard Burton, Tom Jones, Steve McQueen. Steve gave a eulogy at his friend Jay Sebring's funeral with a pistol stuffed in his belt and never left his side. Michelle Phillips carried a gun in her purse next to her lipstick and keys. Peacenik David Crosby bought a shotgun. Jack Nicholson slept next to a hammer. And much effort was made to get rid of every little secret and every little habit in the greater Los Angeles area. Incriminating evidence was buried way down in a hole. Cut out the freaky living to avoid the freaky dying. No one wanted their deepest secrets exposed. No one wanted to reveal what it was that really got them high for fear that it would put a target on their head. As one anonymous source told Life Magazine at the time, toilets are flushing all over Beverly Hills. The entire Los Angeles sewer system is stoned. Police had found drugs scattered all throughout the murder scene at Sharon Tate's home at 10050 Cielo Drive next to the mutilated bodies. And we're not talking about a little marijuana residue in the ashtray next to Sharon's bed. Police recovered 30 grams of hashish and 10 capsules of the new synthetic drug MDA in the room Wojtek Frykowski and Abigail Folger were staying in. More cocaine and plenty of grass in Jay Sebring's black Porsche parked outside. The drugs weren't anything new. The party came to Hollywood years ago, decades even. Actors in the silent age hid crippling morphine habits behind the smiles they delivered to the movie cameras. Major motion picture studios put good money into keeping that wholesome fantasy alive for the public to devour. Guys like Eddie Mannix, who for years worked as MGM's fixer, made every problem go away with a little bit of muscle and a whole lot of cash. Everyone was in on it. And most importantly, stars got what they wanted. Always. Didn't matter the era. 
if Charlie Chaplin needed to get the 16-year-old he'd knocked up over the Mexican border, then Hollywood made it happen. If Barbara Stanwyck wanted the public to believe she had cut her wrists while closing a window and not by slitting them in a suicide attempt, then Hollywood made it happen. If Joan Crawford needed to suppress the scandalous stag film she starred in before she became famous, then Hollywood made that happen too. And if a teenage Judy Garland needed to get hooked on amphetamines in order to stay awake for the long, grueling days on movie sets, then Hollywood made it happen. If Clark Gable didn't want anyone to know about a love child he fathered with a co-star, not even the child herself, then Hollywood made it happen. Hell, if the highest paid actor of the silent film era who'd gone through three trials for a depraved sexual assault and murder only to be blackballed by the entire industry wanted a second chance despite being labeled a bottom-feeding pariah, well, that's a different story entirely. For this story, we highly recommend you check out the episode on Fatty Arbuckle from Batland, season one, Hollywood Man. Point is, the realest thing about Hollywood is that it presented itself as a fantasy. The fantasy was done with lights and camera angles, hair and makeup and real life talking points that were as scripted and rehearsed as any major motion picture. The fantasy made money. Reality was bankrupt. Hollywood was not blissfully innocent until one August morning in 1969 when it was shocked awake with the news of the brutal murders on Cielo Drive. The other side of Hollywood, the ugly underneath, was there all along. Even back then in the 1960s, all you had to do was leave the safety of Beverly Hills gated communities, head south on the 101, and tore the burned out doors of downtown LA buildings where bums had been doused with gasoline and set on fire just the night before. Soon, it wasn't just nameless bums getting torched on Skid Row. It was pregnant actresses and hairstylists to the stars getting stabbed repeatedly in their own homes. Manson, the murders, it was nothing more than a director with a megaphone calling cut on the whole fantasy. The pretending stopped. The sun rose blindingly in the city of make-believe. But before that sun rose, the players in this elaborate fantasy were happily partying in Southern California canyons in houses like those of America's prettiest star and America's plus-size sweetheart. And back in the late 60s, in a haze of grass and LSD, it was becoming increasingly clear that the good vibrations were nothing more than figments of someone's imagination. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Sharon Tate knew who she would see when she visited Cass Elliott's place on Woodrow Wilson Drive. Poets, actors, bikers, dopers, lots of musicians. Hey, was that Mickey Dolenz? Definitely wasn't Peter Tork because that guy was always 99% naked. But that definitely was the Love and Spoonful's John Sebastian over there. His librarian glasses and mutton chops gave it away. The Bird's Gene Clark wasn't giving anything away, especially not the affair he was having with Michelle Phillips. God help him if Papa John ever caught wind of that. Frank Zappa could give a shit about what two or more consenting adults wanted to do in their own time, regardless of who they were betrothed to. He definitely put out that absolutely free love vibe, what with the hot freaks following him around and all. And you could always count on David Crosby to show up, sometimes with his long-haired Canadian protege tagging along. Though it was immediately more than obvious to everyone except David Crosby that, despite what Cros said or thought, Joni Mitchell was no man's protege. Everyone went to Mama Cass's place, and for good reason. There was the company, for one. The feeling that you were in the middle of a creative cauldron, and there was always music being made, ideas being exchanged. 
and there was always privacy and space. Once the home of Hollywood screen queen, Natalie Wood, Cass's English country revival home was tucked away deep in Laurel Canyon's lush greenery. Queen Palms looked out on the San Fernando Valley below. The hustle and bustle of LA seemed light years away, another galaxy altogether. Places like Mama Cass's were a bubble that seemed to exist outside the real world. Cass welcomed all of her guests with open arms. Her place was like a 24-7 truck stop, as she once said herself. All work and no play makes Cass a dull girl, and Cass was far from dull. Cass was hip to the latest fashion, the newest music, the coolest movies. She made her own art, but she also underwrote the art being made by everyone else around her just by giving them a place to let it all hang out. America at large may have thought they were hippies, the kind that practiced free love in the streets of San Francisco during the summer of love. The same ones that wanted to give peace a chance. The ones who were tuning in and dropping out. Dropouts, that's what they were. Idealists, dreamers, lazy good-for-nothing bums who needed to get real jobs. But what a bunch of dirty hippies, right? But that's not entirely true. Mama Cass Elliot, the mamas and the papas, the jingle jangle guitar players and do you believe in magickers, the ones clad in beads, fringe, bell bottoms, and candy colored poochie tights, they were rich hippies. There was a difference. They looked anti-establishment. They sang anti-establishment songs, but they were all very much movers and shakers, firmly ensconced in the establishment's world. They owned expansive and expensive homes in the canyons of Los Angeles with kidney-shaped swimming pools and the kind of Edenist seclusion and privilege that only money could buy. But the rich hippies weren't the only ones partying at Casa de Cas. There were others, the ones who weren't famous, ones who didn't necessarily want to be famous, but who wanted the luxuries afforded by that lifestyle. They coveted thy neighbor's goods and their wives. They found their way in by any means necessary. And there were plenty of these people at Cass's place all the time. Plenty of gate crashers that rich hippie regulars like Sharon Tate barely knew. Like Pick Dawson and Billy Doyle. Sharon had only recently met them, and they both still gave her that same uneasy feeling. And then there were the guests that Sharon didn't know at all. Most blended into the whole Technicolor scene, except for one in particular. A short, scruffy guy surrounded by young, filthy girls. Sharon found herself in the same room as him, at least once. She never met him, she would never forget him. And she would see him again when she'd least expect it. Sharon Tate was tired of playing house on her own. She had Jay to keep her company, sure, but as an expecting mother nesting in her idyllic Cielo Drive home in the summer of 1969, she could stand to see her husband every now and then. Roman was still in London, delayed again. He'd been there for months upon months. Every time he was scheduled to fly home, something else came up. Sharon didn't know how long it took to scout locations for a major studio film, but she knew it didn't take this long. Roman was stalling, partying no doubt, probably fucking some British birds too. Sharon thought having a baby would bring them closer, that it would curb some of Roman's less than chivalrous behavior. Once he asked her to wear a dress that one of his former lovers had worn. He waited for her poolside with some of their friends. 
But when she emerged wearing not the old lover's dress, but a dress of her own, Roman was furious. He picked her up and threw her in the pool while her friends watched in stifled nervous laughter. Roman couldn't throw her in a pool now, not in her condition, with child and all. But Roman also couldn't throw her in a pool now because he wasn't even fucking there. She wondered if he realized how insignificant it made her feel. Roman had thought about Sharon's lonely predicament ahead of time, which is why he asked his friend Wojtek Frykowski and Wojtek's girlfriend Abigail Folger to stay at the house with Sharon. In Roman's mind, it was a win-win. Wojtek got to live above his pay grade in exchange for making Roman feel better about himself. Better about not rushing back to his wife, whose belly was now really showing and driving home the gravity of the situation. In London, Roman didn't have to face the fact that he was going to be a father. Hell, he didn't even have to face the fact that he was married. Sharon, on the other hand, really didn't need Wojtek and Abigail at her house, and she certainly didn't want them there. They attracted people like Pick Dawson and Billy Doyle, in a scene that liked to party all the time. The going away party, that was one thing. But Sharon had her baby on her brain now. Soon, she and Roman would start a new family. Leave the parties to Cass Elliot. She was better at it anyway. Sharon could play guest and not host. Hosting had become less of a priority as 1969 wore on. She had just completed the shoot for 12 plus 1, a.k.a. the 13 chairs her biggest role to date alongside one of cinema's biggest actors. And now that she was back in the States, motherhood was the next thing on her plate. The scene at her house now was less than ideal, so she went to Cass's place. She always had Jay in tow, even though they were no longer a couple. Jay remained a major part of her life, and just like he was a major part of just about everyone's life in Hollywood, especially the men. Paul Newman, Jim Morrison, Bruce Lee, Marlon Brando, Steve McQueen, they all just didn't wake up one day looking like Caesar. Rome may have been built in a day, but Jay Sebring sculpted that cut in about 60 minutes, give or take. As soon as they arrived, Cass went to work making introductions. The first face that day was a familiar one. Michael, this is Sharon. Sharon, this is Michael. Sharon definitely knew who Michael Caine was. The Academy Award nominated Michael Caine. The guy who could play a womanizing playboy in Alfie and then pivot to a ruthless spy in Funeral in Berlin. The English actor was not some drugged out Sunset Strip rube who'd wandered into the A-list scene at Mama Cass's house by accident. Michael Caine was fresh off the film The Italian Job, and he had entered Cass Elliot's home brimming with unnoticeable excitement and understated cool. Sharon was pleasantly surprised when this cool British actor said he knew who she was, that he'd heard of her. He'd even seen her films. Thankfully, he didn't have the same opinion as Roger Ebert when it came to Valley of the Dolls. Sharon was on Cloud Nine. And Cloud Nine was where she remained while Cass continued to guide Michael King through her party and introduce him to her friends. First, to pick Dawson, Billy Doyle, and another friend of theirs Sharon had only just met who they all called Cowboy, real tall, masculine. Sharon wasn't quite sure what to make of her affinity for denim and leather. And then, Cass introduced Michael Caine to Wojtek Frykowski and Abigail Folger, who had followed Sharon over from Cielo Drive. Of course they had. Sharon couldn't fucking escape these two if she tried. And then, Sharon watched from across the room as Cass brought Michael Caine to another guest, a short, scruffy dude surrounded by very young, very filthy girls. Sharon paused to wonder just how young they were. She watched Cass make the introduction the standard hand gestures, the social contract. 
but the short, scruffy guy didn't appear all that social. It didn't look like he said two words to Michael, didn't even offer his hand, just skulked away. All the dirty young women followed. Sharon Tate watched the interaction with equal parts intrigue and suspicion. Something very strange emanated from the freaky little hippie who just blew Michael Caine off without so much as a handshake. Sharon looked around the party. Cass Elliott, Jay Sebring, Michael Caine, Pick Dawson, Billy Doyle, and this angry, weird little man that she'd never laid eyes on before. It wouldn't be until months later, in August of 1969, that the world would fully realize what strange company Sharon Tate kept. I'm Jake Brennan, and this episode of Badlands is to be continued. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. 